Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST 222, the Henry Kaiser Remarrying for Money CD. It's a dense, challenging, and ultimately rewarding album, I would say. But man, oh man, it's a it's a wild one. So really looking forward to getting into this one. Yep. Before we get into it, though, you probably should hit us with some spiels. And don't forget, you've got to spin my wheel of spiels at some point. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to do another book report, Ryan, and I'll try to do this without any spoilers because I know you have this book coming in in the mail. Okay. But I wanted to mention another great book I plowed through this summer because there's a tie-in with this episode, mm-hmm. and that's Disturbing the Peace, The Rise yeah. and Fall of 415 Records by Bill Kopp yeah. on my current fave book imprint, Hozak Books. Uh, 415 was a label based out of San Francisco circa 78 to 87, typically described as a new wave label, it, but it was pretty eclectic. You know, the early bands are like The Nuns, The Mutants, New Math, who, mm-hmm. who I know we've talked about before. You betcha. Uh, Rocky Erickson's The Evil One, mm-hmm. The Popo Pies, S- yep. SVT. They kind of do it in the book like we do on our show. Each chapter covers each release, including comps and singles. Of course, it was the stuff I didn't know that I got hip to because of the book that I that I really dug. Romeo Void had a, had a number of albums on the mm-hmm. label, and although I'd heard of the band, you know, and seen them mentioned many times, I've never really dug into them before. They're cool, new wavy, post punk, super arty, lots of sax. Deborah Isle, the the vocalist, is is really great, really cool lyricist. I love her delivery, kind of a Kim Gordon esque at times, half sung, half spoken. Mm. Really cool. Uh, the chapters on the Red Rockers were cool. I, I know I've mentioned their debut, Condition Red, before as kind of an underrated classic. You would love it, Ryan. Huge Clash influence. Uh, I kind of wrote their later albums off, though, as like an attempt to appeal to a more mainstream audience, but it maybe unfairly. I'm going to revisit those after reading their chapters. Cool. I can't wait to read that book. Yeah, the big discovery for me, Ryan, is a band called Translator. Do you know them? It doesn't ring a bell. I might have. I might have come across them, but it's not ringing a bell. Tell me about them. Yeah, just a really deadly band. Super catchy, Beatles-esque songs. A 60s folk rock influence for sure. Really excellent songwriting. One of their bigger songs is Everywhere That I'm Not was just like my song of the summer this year. I just listened to it on repeat. No way. I'd suggest the demo collection that Omnivore released in 2015 called Sometimes People Forget. I bet you that's where I know it from. Yeah. And their fourth album, 1986's Evening of the Harvest, is just, you know, so good. Honestly, I can't believe I'd never heard of this band before. They they should have had a bigger fan base for sure. Translator. Yeah. I mean, maybe they did have a big fan base and they're, they're just not on my radar. I'm not sure. But that demo collection is, you know, very stripped down and just so badass. And, and Evening of the Harvest, that record, is just a real artistic statement. So get into Translator, such an amazing band. I'm on it. I read their, the chapters on, on their albums twice. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, and here's an SS Tree book alert, Ryan, for you mm-hmm. and our listeners if you didn't see this. On Friday, October 14th, Chris D. has a new book coming out on his own imprint, Poison Fang Books. Did you see this? I did not. 
It's called Writing for Slash, 1977 to 81, the know-it-all years. And it's a collection of his writing for Slash during those years. The cover says, uh, reviews of records, live events, and films. Oh, that's a must-have. Yeah, forward by Andy Schwartz of New York Rocker, with a preface by Byron Coley, of course. And he's also teased a new Divine Horseman record. Uh, he says it's in the can, and it's another double album set for release mid-2023. So, needless to say, I'm I'm very excited about both of those yeah, that's not, that sounds great. Yeah. Can't wait for my Hozak order to arrive, and it looks like i got to make a Christie order. Mm-hmm. Uh, really quickly, Ryan, also I thought I'd alert our listeners to the latest issue of this, Maggot Brain. Oh, do you, uh, do you mean this? Yep, that's Maggot the one. Maggot Brain? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, which is the quarterly magazine released by Third Man Records and Books. I know I've mentioned it on the show previously, but I'm... Specifically talking this week about issue number nine from uh, June, July, August of this year. It's got a bunch of cool uh, and interesting stuff, as it always does. The articles are also, you know, super eclectic. A a really fun article by Seth uh, Lorenz about how he discovered Fugazi at kind of this really important and pivotal moment in his life seeing them at DC space and, and just what the band meant to him and how they changed his life. It really rang true with me, not necessarily, not necessarily specifically to Fugazi, but just, you know, the power of music. Mm-hmm. There's an article, this dude, uh, Tim Abondello wrote called close encounters of a former doorman, which is exactly as the title suge- suggests a section of, uh, tour photos taken by Buzz Osborne on their tour with ministry. Yep. An art, uh, an article on Sherry Knight. Sherry was in the American Americana band blood oranges in the nineties, but in the late seventies, she went to evergreen state college in Olympia and hung out with John Foster, Bruce Pavitt and Steve Fisk and made a minimalist synth drone, uh, record. And, uh, it's been released now, just now 40 years later called American rituals. Mm-hmm. Real, Interesting article about that. Uh, an excellent piece by Doug Coombe on John Brannan, his first band, Static. Kind of pre-negative approach. They released a, an archival collection on Third Man last year called Toothpaste and Pills. Uh, and, you know, Third Man, of course, reissued some of the Laughing Hyenas records. A hilarious interview with John Waters. Uh, but the reason I'm talking about this issue is the cover story and featured interview, which is with Raymond Pettibone. They talk about all kinds of stuff, you know, art, sports, his subject matter, both currently and in the 80s. It's a it's a really good interview. Yeah, it's it's a great magazine. I, I rarely pick up a magazine these days, but I picked up that one. Uh, the article on John Brannan also mentions that there's going to be a Laughing Hyenas book coming out mm-hmm. and a live record, which is cool. I also liked the uh, the article on the feelies. That yeah. was a good that was a good one for me. Yeah. That magazine's always good, man. What do you have? Well, man, I've got a couple of just uh, tidbits, and then i got to get you to spin the wheel of spiels. So first of all, um, I noticed that Hammered Hulls has got a new record coming out in October on Discord. Definitely, definitely got to get that one when it comes out. You know, I heard a 10-second snippet of the song on Bandcamp, and I went, no, I got to turn that off. Got to wait for the record to arrive in the mail because that just might be a top 10. The other thing I noticed this week, 
Uh, I did not see this coming, but man, did I love it. There's a new CCR documentary on Netflix. Oh, with, really? Yeah, with Jeff Bridges, the dude, narrating it. It uh, documents their uh, European tour. And man, oh man, like it's um, it's just awesome. It just makes me love Credence even more. And there's so much flannel, Brand. <laughs> so much flannel. Credence was flying the flannel before it was cool. Hey, uh, did, is like did John Fogarty participate? Uh, it's all archival footage and Jeff Bridges narrating it. Oh, cool. So, so I don't know whether it's authorized or anything like that. I didn't really look at it, but it just follows the four dudes, you know, on a European tour, super humble, just, you know, playing the tunes for the European crowds. It goes like all the way back to their origin story, Hmm. follows them up. There's been a bit of chatter lately about CCR. I, I follow Deke Dickerson's thread and he w- he was just kind of raving about how he rediscovered them and how amazing they were. And then there were a bunch of people kind of talking about how their rhythm section doesn't get much street cred. Yeah. But and they are a bit of a bashy, you know, not super technically proficient rhythm section. But that's kind of what makes them so awesome, you know. Yeah. Like I don't know. Yeah, I just they were a garage band essentially. Yeah. yeah. Never get tired of them, man. Yep. All right, man. So. Wheel of Spiels, I've got books on the tree and Watts on bass. What should I hit this week? Okay, well, before we do that, are we going to talk about the new Mars Volta? Oh, God. <laughs> so, so, some I guess, con- some I guess, context we, I guess for, we are. I some context are for our listeners is you and I were texting about it this week. Yeah, well, yeah. the new Mars Volta is out, and before I had even cracked the cellophane on it, Brant was already telling me what he thought about it. <laughs> What'd you think? Well, so for people who don't know, you know, the Mars Volta have been around for a while. This is their last album in like 12 years. I think it's been since their last one. And they um, arose out of At The Drive-In into the Mars Volta ultra technical, jazzy, proggy, uh, just an insane live band. I actually saw them open for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. And John Frusciante came out and jammed with them for a song, like before the Chili's played their set. And it was just insanity and amazing. Amazing because it was just so chaotic. Yeah. It was just out, just insane, right? And and all their records are like that, except for this one. And, and I think that that's what really caught people off guard. I have, you know, I have not read any reviews on it. I have not heard one note of it. And then you texted me and you said, hey, have you heard the new Mars Volta? <laughs> uh, and since you did that, I have listened to it several times. Um, it actually arrived in the mail yesterday. So I listened to it a couple of times last night and a couple of times this morning. It's definitely a departure. It's definitely way more controlled. There's hardly any guitar on it. Yeah, I mean, it still has the uh, the elements of Mars Volta that you know from prior records, but it's way, way more uh, controlled, focused, quiet, melodic. Um, it's not nearly as chaotic, so it's different. A huge departure. They could have called it, you know, something other than the Mars Volta, and I bet you people would be more accepting of it. Yeah. Um, it's. But I've listened to it a few times. I don't know where it's going to sit in the Mars Volta canon, as it were, for me. But I, I mean, I don't think it's great. I don't think it's bad. It's just really, really different. What did you think? Uh, I think it's their Black Album. Yeah? <laughs> what are you, but which Black Album, though, are you referencing, though, when you say that? 
I don't know, man. Uh, I like I'm pretty open minded and I can handle a huge stylistic departure. You know, it's not that I I don't mind that they're doing that. I just didn't just didn't like it. Didn't like it. I think I texted you that it sounds like Fleetwood Mac. You did. You did say that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it sounds like Fleetwood Mac, but I'm I'm loath to even say that because you're all of a sudden going to accuse me of being a Fleetwood Mac aficionado or something. But I don't know. I, I, I want him to go off, man. I was texting texting another friend of mine, you know, who I sometimes hip to new music or whatever. And he was asking me about, I can't remember, a new record and whether I had heard it. And I was like, no, I haven't heard that, but I've heard the new Mars Volta and it sucks. <laughs> and he... <laughs> And he goes, I, I don't know who Mars Volta are. I've never heard of them. So I sent him a YouTube video of them on the Henry Rollins show. Yeah, that's crazy. And, man. I, and I was like, this is the test right here. If this doesn't blow your mind, you know, they're not for you. Yeah. And they that clip, I know exactly what you're getting at on the Henry Rollins show. I know, exa- I know the exact clip. Mm-hmm. That is not this new album. No. Um, but I mean, you know, it still is interesting well-written music it's just super toned down it could be a different they should have maybe called it a different band i don't know yeah i don't know well i'm not a you know i'm not a big believer in that either they can call it whatever they want and if they want to call it mars volta they can and i'm sure there's people that that will go along with them as well and i do that sometimes with bands too uh and i'll listen to this one again and who knows maybe it'll grow on me but yeah it might have just been the initial shock it is shocking. I'm going to give it a few more chances, for sure. I'm not sure I'm going to go back to it as often, though, as like Francis the Mute, though. Yeah. Let's be honest. Okay, Wheel of Spiel. I only have two options this week. I feel like last week I had more options. You've got three. You've got three. Books, On the Tree, and Watts on Bass. And I mean, you know, time's a-wasting. If you want me to squeeze in two, I can squeeze in two. On the Tree. On the Tree. Okay, here we go. Flipping to the On the Tree pages. Since we went on break at the beginning of summer on the SS tree that I noticed out there. We've talked about some of these, but here's some updates. There's a new off album coming out free LSD on fat possum. And they also re-released their first four EPs, which originally came out as seven inches and then as a box set, but they also re-released it as a 12 inch. They've got a different rhythm section. The vibe is still off, but it's different. And I'm going to be fully along for the ride based on the tracks I've heard. Yeah. Sounds sounds just killer. I think that'll be out by the time this episode comes out. Actually. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. The Ultra Bomb record is out for pre-order now. Time to Burn. That, of course, is Greg Norton's band. I mentioned before the break the Psychic Temple records that were coming out on Big Ego Records. That's Chris Schlarb, who has collaborated with Watt before. The plays music for airports and plays Planet Caravan. Get those records. They just sound awesome. I love I love anything Psychic Temple. All of his records are great. Paul Rossler released a record, The Turning of the Bright World, out on Kitten Robots. It's out on digital and CD. Uh, Scott Reynolds announced that he's going to be recording or is in the midst of recording or finishing up a new record. It's called Magic Beans and Time Machines. He's recording it with Bill Stevenson at the Blasting Room. Bill is on drums. Stefan Edgerton is also on guitar. And a bunch of other musician friends are on it. Uh, Can't wait to get that. New Scott Reynolds, Blasting Room. With Bill and Stefan, that's going to be good. A new Roger C. Miller record. Eight Dream Interpretations for Solo Electric Guitar Ensemble. Out on Cuneiform. 
Roger, of course, from Mission of Burma and other bands, he composed this record by using a dream interpretation technique, and it has four guitars, three on legs, and then one over shoulder with looping. Uh, it's very kind of Roger Miller, I would say, in terms of what we've heard from him in the, in the last few years. Still no trinary system. I thought there was a new trinary system record coming out, but I haven't seen that one yet. But Roger's new record is out on LP, CD, and digital. Also in the last few weeks, there was announced a new heavy blanket flexi single. There's a new album coming out in early 2023 on Outer Battery. But Outer Battery, in the meantime, released a limited flexi single of one song called Crushed. Um, there are three different picture flexies that you can get. And this, of course, is Jay Mascus and Earthless, essentially, the Heavy Blanket Band. And that's it on the tree since we went on break. Okay. There's more stuff that's on the tree, but I'm kind of saving them all up for our year-end roundup. Yeah. Well, I yeah. know that I know there's been more, man. That's just what I caught. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to hit something else, books or what's on base, or do we want to get into the CD? Uh, save it, man. Let's do a, a spiel drip. Okay. <laughs> I don't like that term at all. Let's get over to the history lesson. History lesson, part one. All right, man. Henry Kaiser, always a wild ride. Interesting, you know, like speaking of a wild ride with the Mars Volta record, we're here with some Kaiser. We're yeah. just, uh, our mind is getting totally blown this week. Very cool. We've had Henry, of course, on the show before. We had SST 110 with the Crazy Backwards Alphabet record. 118, Devil in the Drain, where the man himself, Henry Kaiser, was on the show. 147, Fred Frith and Henry Kaiser with Enemies Like These, Who Needs Friends. 198, Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It. And then, of course, we had Henry on the Everett Shock Ghost Boys record, SST 182, and the Scott D. of Colby Slide of Hand record, SST 151. This one was released by SST in 88, but it's a re-release. And, uh, you know, it's a cool record to get into. I have never heard this record before this episode. I definitely had never heard the original uh, release on the German label, Minor Music. And first time getting into this CD this week. Very cool. Yep, same for me. So, yeah, as you mentioned, it's a reissue. The original album, just called Marrying for Money, was released on LP only in 1986 on small German label Minor Music. Henry told me it was very obscure outside of Germany, uh, so he suggested a reissue of it to Greg. And like much of Henry's releases, there's an extra four tracks on the SST version that are not on the, the original. Uh, here's the tie-in with the Disturbing the Peace book. The rhythm section yes. for, for this uh, album is Hilary Haynes on bass and his brother John Haynes on drums. And they were the rhythm section in San Francisco band Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, who had a single on 415 Records and therefore a chapter in the book. Weren't they also in Chrome? Uh, one of them was. We've talked about this before. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe they both were. Thought both, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. They were known at that time as the Stench Brothers. That was their <laughs> punk rock surname. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Theirs is an interesting story. They ended up signing to Warner Brothers. Uh, for a full-length uh, album, Pearl Harbor, uh, but they split up on the road. 
Vocalist Pearl E. Gates had started hanging out with The Clash and ended up moving to the UK and getting married to Paul Simon. And uh, Henry couldn't remember how he connected with the Stench Brothers um, or who introduced them to him. He told me they were also the rhythm section in Yor- Yorma Kalkonen's White Gland Band. Yorma was a member of the Jefferson Airplane in Hot Tuna, mm. uh, who had an extensive solo career starting in the mid-70s. Looks like the White Gland Band was just a touring lineup, and the only credit I could find for either of uh, the Haynes brothers was Hillary playing bass on one track on his Barbecue King album from 1980. Uh, there, there are also uh, a number of guest guitarists on this record, which we'll get to uh, when we go through the, through the tracks. Yeah. But yeah. There's a kind of a preamble there in the in the liner notes, Ryan. All right. From the liner notes to the Henry Kaiser re-release, Remarrying for Money. This album has been previously issued with much less material on the German minor music label as Marrying for Money. At the time of these recordings, 1982 to 83, I was attempting to adapt the extended guitar language and extended guitar live processing techniques which I had developed for solo free improvisation, documented on such albums as Outside Pleasure, Aloha, and especially It's a Wonderful Life, to a more conventional rock band framework. In the case of these recordings, a free improvising rock band context. With two exceptions, all of these selections were completely improvised. The guest guitarists were later added on as overdubs. Yeah. So Henry told me with the exception of two of these tracks, there is nothing prepared. Mm -hmm. All tracks are trio free improvs with zero pre-planning at all. All the trio tracks were recorded in an, in an hour, and they used everything they recorded. He said, we had never played together before the session. It was a blind date. That's how Henry put it. Wow. Talk about jamming Econo. Yeah. Uh, for the production, um, it was recorded 1982-83 at Mobius Music in San Francisco, engineered by Oliver DeSisso, who owned and ran Mobius We've definitely mm-hmm. seen Oliver and Mobius before. In fact, yep. Oliver engineered almost all of the stuff we've seen from Henry, I think. Uh, the minimal liner notes on the German version say, This album has very little overdubbing. There are never more than two guitar tracks present. There's also one live track on here, which we'll we'll discuss when we get to it. Mm-hmm. So this was released on CD and cassette only. Yeah. Uh, definitely too long for an for an LP. In fact... Ryan Henry has a little disclaimer about the length of the of the album. <laughs> he's very he's very considerate. Yeah, when it, it comes to this record, hey. Yeah, it's the same kind of disclaimer he has on those who know history are doomed to repeat it. It says on the back here, this is a special maximum length CD, seventy three minutes plus, is what it says. And then on the liners, it says, please note that this is a very long CD. I wanted to give you the most music that I could for the money. This is probably too much music to listen to in one sitting, so I suggest that you program your CD player to play only a portion of this quote-unquote show at any one time. Yeah, it's one hour, 13 minutes, and I agree. It's it's good to break it up. I I kind of listened to it three songs at a time and then took a break. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I kind of took that as a challenge. I only listened to it one setting at a time all the way through because i i heard like connections in between songs as a result too yeah. i i listened to it all the way through a couple times too and you're right there are definitely connections so this came out in 1988 
So I guess so much for my declaration last week that we're firmly in 1989. (laughs) January 1st, 1988, apparently. Mm. Do you want to go through these tracks, Ryan? Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. Here, I'm going to start us off with some Spaceman. Okay. Okay? Yep. So it does say 1989's First Harvest Mm. in the catalog here. So what the heck? What's going on here? When was this actually released? I saw it as released January 1st, 1988. What the heck happened here, Brent? Uh, my typo, I guess. January 1st, 89, maybe. Oh, typo. Here we go. So this is what the spaceman said. In the SST catalog, 1989's First Harvest, Henry Kaiser remarrying for money. Exhumed from ancient vaults come the out-of-print marrying for money album, newly augmented with lots of other curiosities from the original sessions and others. 74 minutes of a variety of Kaiser's free improvisation guitar stylings with a celebrity cast of guest guitarists featuring Bill Frizzell on the 16 minute, the last of the few, the classic, I'm so glad Mr. McGuffin and 11 others SST 222 CD only Mm. is what it says here in the catalog CD only, but it definitely came out on cassette. It did. Yep. So the first track is the classic, I'm So Glad. This is a traditional song. And this song, by the way, is exclusive to the SST reissue. Mm -hmm. In the liner notes, he says, this is one of two exceptions to the free improvised approach of the album. He says in the liner notes, it's a traditional country blues popularized by Skip James that was covered by Cream in the 60s. He said, I suppose that my version is some kind of tribute to Eric Clapton. The 415 book says, John and Hillary had a musical simpatico that comes from being a rhythm section and brothers, and they are most certainly on fire. You know, that's true of this record as well, I think. Yeah. Interesting track. I mean, it's definitely not improvised. The drums are rarely not doing fills of some sort, though, almost like marching drums. And And then, you know, although it's a pretty straight ahead performance compared to some of the improvised tunes it still ends with like a train wreck ending yeah it's pretty impressive a real bed for henry to do his thing on top of the rhythm track and and he does his thing all over this track love the way he kind of overbends the notes on the main melody of the song it's a great Mm -hmm. opener definitely lots of overdubbing on this one you know, to think that they'd never played together previously when you listen to this, and the whole record just tells you about the quality of the musicianship. The Cream version, of course, has vocals. Um, you know, they were they recorded it in the studio for their debut, Fresh Cream, in 1968. Uh, their Goodbye album in 69 opened with it, uh, and their reunion show at the Royal Albert Hall in 2005, uh, they played it there too. Uh, it's also on their BBC session, so it was a real staple of the Cream set. Yeah. Uh, the Skip James version is quite different. He was, you know, I think the first person to record it, but it's a Delta Blues spiritual that dated back to the kind of the beginning of the blues. Mm. Are you a Are you a Cream guy? Are you into eh, Cream? Not overly. Yeah, I've never went into Cream. I think I just have such a hatred of Eric Clapton. Yeah, I know. I just can't. I just can't go anywhere near it. Yeah, he's such a piece of shit. But which is too bad because I. You know, I do like his his early solo albums and the Derek and the Domino stuff, but it's hard to listen to because he's just such a turd of a man. Oh, no doubt, hey? Yep. And we've seen Henry do Skip James before. Um, he did Hard Time Killing Floor Blues on uh, with enemies like these, Who Needs Friends, with Fred Frith. 
so track two, uh, Murder One, that's where the original LP starts, the minor, mm-hmm. the minor music LP. This is a trio improv with Glenn Phillips as the guest overdub. Yeah. All of the guest guitarist tracks were overdubbed later on top of the trio tracks. I asked Henry about his, his guitar effects. He said, I had been using digital rack effects in the way that I had been using for playing solo, often trying to sound like more than one guitar. Interesting, because it sounded like an octave pedal yeah. on this one to me, right? And so there you get it sounding like more than one guitarist. Yeah. E. Bloom on those BOC records was always credited as playing stun guitar. And I always think of that when I hear Glenn Phillips play stun guitar. Stun guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some wailing on top of some rumbling toms into kind of a driving rhythm. It really hangs together, though, for being improv. Yeah, and we did a deep dive on Glenn for his only SST album, Elevator, on episode 136, where we were fortunate enough to have Glenn on as, on as a guest. So Was Henry on that record? I, I don't think I can't so. Remember. I, I don't can't think remember. he was, no. Yeah, I think I would have caught it. And it doesn't mention it in the liners, because Henry does a bit of a SST discography in yeah. the liners on this CD. Yeah, I don't think he was. Yeah, I don't think so. The backing track for this uh, song is super spazzy, but... Uh, the lead melody isn't. It, it kind of reminds me of that Ted Nugent song, uh, Homebound, for some reason. Hmm. Speaking of pieces of shit. <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> Which, again, is unfortunate because that Double Live Gonzo album, you know how much I like that record, right? Yeah, 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 it is a shame. I actually ended up selling it. Like, really? I, ha- I had it forever, but it's just like I would look at it on my shelf and I'm like, can't do it. Uh, I would look at it and I go, you know what? That slot is better used by a record <laughs> where someone is not such a jerk, or at least I'm blissfully ignorant. Yeah, you know, I'll you know. put a record there until I find out that that guy's an asshole too. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's just a certain point with these people where you can't ignore it anymore. Right. Yeah. I know. The backing track, like Henry's track, almost sounds looped to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn's part sounds double tracked, I would say. But then again, there's no more than two guitars at any point at any point in time, so maybe not. Yeah. Can I just like pause for a second though? Again, on one of the things I love the most about instrumental records, and that's the song titles. Yeah. You know, like just just when we go through the tracks, just kind of soak in the song titles. Right. This one's called Murder One, and then you got to make sure that when you're listening to it, you're thinking of the track name. Just love that. Yeah, that just makes me think of Lemmy, but... Yeah. (laughs) Okay, track three, The Setup. So again, a trio improv with guest guitarist Fred Marshall overdubbing a guitar track. Uh, So as Henry mentioned to me, Fred is mainly known as a bassist. So he was born in 1938. Uh, He's a jazz bassist playing with tons of greats, including Ben Webster, Joe Henderson, Dexter Gordon, Pharaoh Sanders, and tons more. Um, Primarily, he's known as the bassist in the... Vince Guaraldi trio, and he helped compose and perform the music for the 1965 Charlie Brown Christmas TV special. Uh, so later on, he he and the drummer Jerry Grinelli joined up with Grateful Dead lighting tech Bill Ham and formed Light Sound Dimension LSD and toured the world for decades performing ex- experimental jazz music to psychedelic light displays. Uh, he was a sculptor and inventor uh, like he invented the Megatar, which combined a sitar and a guitar. 
Whoa. He passed away in 2001. Henry said, told me, I had Vince Gallardi and Bolasete records that uh, Fred played on before I played guitar. And I met him at his gigs. He was a genius guitarist, but there were no released recordings of him playing guitar other than this one with me. Wow. Hey, Kate, hang on. Random tie-in to CCR here. Okay? Yep. So when when Fogarty, when the Fogarty's, maybe is how I should put that, they they heard Vince's records. You'll see this in the documentary. They heard Vince's records, and they went who originally were issued by Fantasy. Uh-huh. And they went to Fantasy and said, you should sign us. And so Vince is part of the reason that Fogarty and Fantasy got together. Boom. Uh, yeah, well, that didn't turn out so good for CCR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Do tell. You're going to love, you're going to love watching it because like, I can't remember the guy's name, the Fantasy label head. Yeah. They're interviewing him while he's like polishing a revolver at his desk <laughs> or something. You're going to love it. Yeah. You're going to love it. Uh, again, Henry's track sounds doubled, but uh, I don't think it is. Um, you know, I think that's just you know, all the effects that he's using. He did say, you know, that he liked to incorporate effects to make it sound like more than one guitar. Do you think it's Fred who's playing the clean though? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it must be, hey, kind of a Mark Knopfler sound here and there. Yeah, yep. Uh, some nice clean tone soloing. Even in the background, if you listen, when Fred stops soloing, it almost sounds like keyboards in the background, but I think it's just a, a you know, a slap back or something from, from Henry's track. I thought it, it almost sounds like a, like a harp, yeah, or something. It sounds percussive, string instrumenty, but um, yet again, you know, a cool improv, but held together by a bit of a looping bass line. Yep, yeah, a lot of the bass lines are are like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Track four, T Men. Uh, this is another of the trio recordings done live off the floor, no overdubs. It's cool the way Hillary and and Henry are playing off each other with that kind of central two note pattern, that FG. You know. Yeah, well, it's it's reminiscent of the next song too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is the one where you. I think you probably were talking about where it sounds like they just kind of kept going almost in the studio. Yeah, I, I asked Henry about the guitar effect on this, and he said it's a Zeta Polyfuzz, and he, <laughs> he sent me a photo of of the rack. You know, it's made by Zeta Zeta Systems in Berkeley, and it's just like one of these wild '80s rack effects. Uh, it's got settings on it like sub pulse, unison saw, hex guitar. Wow. Yeah. Uh, track five, the big clock. Like uh, like we're saying, it almost sounds like an extension of T Men. Similar kind of main riff. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It was a quick session, so who knows? Maybe they just kept going. Uh, in in the liner notes, he's talking about the trio recordings, and he says, "I attri- I tried to achieve a very dense and polyphonic sound from one guitar. I think that the Big Clock is especially successful in this respect." Uh, two heroes of mine who provided a lot of inspiration to my approach here were Evan Parker and Terry Riley, and also Ryan on the minor music version of the album. He dedicates the Big Clock to John Zorn. Oh, interesting. Yeah. How about those? harmonics hillary's playing cool yeah yeah there's definitely some bass harmonics on this record here and there yeah hard not to think of jacko but i mean by the time this come around um heavy bass players were whipping out the harmonics liberally from time to time and it totally works as this trio 
it de- and it kind of fits like in the same sonic layer as some of Henry's guitar noodlings, yeah. the harmo- harmonics on the bass for sure. Yeah, love all the feedback and and all those kind of discordant chords that Henry's playing. Mm-hmm. Track six, too late for tears. This was a highlight for me. Uh, John Abercrombie is the guest guitarist on this one. Henry told me. I'd met him at gigs of his, and he was suddenly living in the Bay Area at this time, so I just asked him to come and play. I've always had good fortune in making friends with and playing with heroes of mine. So John Abercrombie is an absolute jazz legend. He graduated mm-hmm. Berklee College of Music in 1967, and he just started a long career. Uh, he played Fusion in the Becker Brothers. He joined Billy Coburn's band and played on a couple of all-time classic fusion shred fest 74's crosswinds and also 74's eclipse uh, he also played on billy cobham's 1975 live album shabazz if you want to hear john amber crombie just go off listen to that record uh, tons of albums under his own name uh, with various trios total giant of jazz guitar playing he passed away in 2017 uh, this one's just wild hillary and john playing a super you know intricate but almost funky pattern totally locked in john's soloing is just the perfect complement to to henry's part this one's weird in the best way total henry kaiser that cool kind of slower coda at the end yeah it it kind of uh breaks off and then has some weird kind of outro at the three and a half minute mark yeah, uh, the next track is Mr. McGuffin. This one's exclusive to this release. Uh, written by guest guitarist Bruce Anderson. In the liner notes, Henry says, A composition by my friend Bruce Anderson that is a personal favorite to perform of the Haynes Brothers and myself. So I'm not going to go too deep into Bruce. I believe we did when we saw him on episode 198 for Henry Kaiser's Those Who Know History album. Mm-hmm. He was part of the Henry Kaiser band. Um and he he also played on uh, the Devil in the Drain record, SST 118. Primarily known as a guitarist and songwriter in the San Francisco art rock band MX80 or MX80 Sound. Uh, if you listen to that band, and you should, you know they're a very guitar centric band. So, uh, as he demonstrates here, Bruce was a real player. He unfortunately passed away in January of this year. Uh, Henry couldn't remember, but he told me he thinks maybe this was a song that was played by MX-80, but never recorded. It was a highlight for me. Yeah. Definitely more straight ahead for the record. Slow, jazzy number, but uh, just a killer track. Yeah. Mr. McGuffin must have either been a like a contract killer or a greasy private investigator. Or maybe even a Cold War spy, because that's kind of the the vibes this song evokes you know yeah film noir uh the next song red harvest was my uh, spoiler alert my absolute favorite on the record because all the phaser guitar sounds i I guess so yeah (laughs) so henry says in the liner notes that this is a, a trio recording with another guitar added uh and the guitarist would be henry so uh some seriously incomprehensible time signatures going on here i i love this one uh kind of those clanging guitar chords definitely sounds like controlled chaos and uh in the middle of the song they just shift and shift away and lock into a really cool groove Mm -hmm. yeah it's a highlight i would agree yep 
Uh, the next one, Pigs and Battleships. Love the title. Uh, this would be another trio improv with Henry overdubbing the second guitar track. I like how it starts out mellow and then kicks right into this real discordant post-punk jam. Uh, Henry's playing some slide on it, some wicked percussion type of stuff from, from John. Another highlight for me. Yeah, it opens with some interesting percussive sounds, like almost like sticks or clapping on some strings, almost like a pantar, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Pa- pantar sounds? Maybe. And and then into some total drumbo awesomeness, man. Just gets so drumbo, I love it. Maybe some slabs, though. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Did you pick up on any Beefheart kind of uh, vibes on this track? I did, man. It oh, was total... I'm sure. Yeah, I didn't. But, you know, uh, Henry's a huge Beefheart fan for sure. Yeah. So. I, th- I thought it was great. I loved it. Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, by the time you get to Pigs and Battleships, you could be really fatigued by listening to this record. But it's so out there and it grabs you. And again, it, it gives me all those beef heart sounds i was it just kind of re-energizes you for the rest of the record yeah yeah oh you know gin was all over releasing this one yeah for sure yeah uh track 10 java jack uh this is a live trio with no overdubbing uh pretty sure hillary's playing a fretless bass or just using a bow yeah or maybe it's just an effect i'm not sure He's also playing kind of the same riff on repeat, which gives this one kind of a hypnotic quality that I like. Yeah, the bass playing on it. I don't know if you caught this, Brent, but again, something that out of left field, but just totally surprised me in terms of how much I was enjoying this record. This track gives me some weird reminiscent vibes of that No Means No song, Mama's Little Boy. Mm -hmm. The way that the bass bass playing is happening, like, dong, dong, ding, like... I I was just loving it. It was some cool and and the synth sounds were almost like John Carpenter esque, almost with like some no means no vibes. Love this track. Okay. Uh, the Honey Trap, track eleven, another trio improv with he- Henry providing the overdub. I wonder if Henry ever improvised with Paper Bag. That would have been cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of he and Greg trading riffs. Lots of bleeps and bloops from Henry in this track. An- Sitar. Maybe. There was some sitar in this track, I thought, too, right? I wonder if they were playing that weird... What was that guitar sitar that you just mentioned? Oh, uh, uh, mantar or something? Yeah, like <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if the honey trap has got some mantar on it. Yeah. <laughs> this, this might be my fen- favorite Henry Kaiser record we've heard on the show. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's really good. Mm. Yeah. Uh, track 12 is The Hairy Eyeball. Amos mm. Garrett is the guest guitarist on this track. Uh, Amos is an American-Canadian blues guitarist and vocalist, raised in Toronto and Montreal, but born in Detroit. Uh, he played with well-known Canadian duo Ian and Sylvia. Uh, he moved to the to the U.S. in the early 70s and spent many years as, as a session guy, uh, but ended up getting tired of you know being a hired gun, so he started playing and recording under his own name. He's a pretty well-known blues man up here in, in Canada. He, he even moved back here. He relocated to Turner Valley, Alberta, Ryan, in 1989. Wow. Henry Tolley, Amos and I were pals when he lived in Point Richmond in the Bay Area, which is when this was recorded. Uh, this is kind of kind of a mid-tempo jam, uh, some bottleneck slide. It's kind of a herky-jerky blues almost. 
wonder if Amos lives near Art Bergman out in the boonies of Alberta. Yeah. Did you see there's a Art Bergman book coming out? Dude, dude. Oh, Wheel, did I spiel? Wheel of, Wheel of Spiels, man, next week. Okay. Yeah. Dude, uh, don't go there. Okay. It's also the last track on the original LP. Yeah. Yeah. So the last two that we're going to get to here are exclusive to the SST version. And this is also uh, streaming, by the way, so everyone can, can listen to this. Uh, track 13 is the last of the few. The liners say, uh, this was the first time that my friend Bill Frizzell and I played together. It is a mm-hmm. live guitar duet recorded in concert. It was recorded live at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, November 21st, 1985, by Robert Shoemaker. Uh, we've seen Bill before. He's on the CD bonus tracks for the CBA. Bill's an avant-garde jazz guitarist, primarily known as a prolific participant in the downtown New York scene. Yeah, legend. Yeah, frequent collaborator of John Zorn's. Uh, some heavy effects going on here. Sounds like Bill is maybe uh, bowing his guitar on and off. Yeah, that's the thing that caught my attention on this track, is that sound, whatever that sound is, it actually, in a weird way, reminded me of the There Will Be Blood soundtrack. Do okay. you know that movie, yeah. There Will yeah. Be Blood? I do, yeah. Like Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead composed that soundtrack. There's a couple of tracks on there where I was like, man, that sounds... A lot like that, you know, I'm an oil man, right? That's that, that's that one. And there's songs on there, Eat Him By His Own Light or Henry Plainview, those tracks. Very interesting, similar vibe. I wonder if Johnny knows about this Kaiser performance with Frizzell and if that inspired him. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, This one's also 17 minutes long, this track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and then tra- track 14, the last one, Tapping the Source. This sounds like another trio improv with with Henry over overdubbing to a track. It's really good. I'm surprised it didn't make the original album, actually. Mm-hmm. Cool uh, intro. Yeah. Some tribal drumming from John on the toms. A pretty funky repeating bass groove from Hillary. And Henry just going totally berserk on top of it all. <laughs> <laughs> but his playing is also melodic, too. Yeah, yeah. Definitely gaining additional appreciation for Henry on this record, I would say. Yeah. Uh, the cover art, Ryan, looks some like some Atomic Age Russian propaganda or something. Uh, it's actually from a still. It's a still from a film called The Mysterians. It's a 1957 Japanese sci-fi movie uh, and was also uh, the inspiration for the band Question Mark and The Mysterians. Mm. It looks like a collage rather than a movie still. But now I got to see that movie, I guess. Yeah. Henry told me it was the first film he ever saw in a movie theater, and it's one of his favorites. Uh, he says he produced a still from the film and gave it to SST. Uh, and I'm assuming the giant samurai robot, you know, on the back, the robot mosquito samurai is also from the movie. I've never seen it, but... I, yeah, maybe. I'm guessing the caped dude on the inside panel is probably, that's probably a Mysterian, maybe. Oh, yeah. Great pick of Henry there oh. by Jim Marshall playing a telly, uh, of all things. You know, don't see, you know, usually I'm used to seeing Henry playing super weird guitars. It's weird to see him playing a normal guitar. Well, it looks like there are two tellies in the picture. Yeah. And then some uh, strat type of um, guitar in between him and the other telly. 
I was just digging the the shelves in the background. Can you guess why? Because there's records on them. Yeah, just the big <laughs> bit. Can you imagine the Henry Kaiser record library back there? Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, and then we've got a picture of the core trio on the on the back. Yeah, I love that. I was trying to figure out who is on Henry's shirt. I was thinking it's like Charlie Parker, maybe, because of the pinstripes, but I can't make out a saxophone. Maybe it's like a Cab Calloway, or I don't know. Yeah, Interesting. Maybe. Dig those, like, I don't know, cow print or leopard print suspenders, though. Love that. Yeah. Henry almost looks like, like uh, you know, a younger Ian Mackay there. Yeah. <laughs> Same hairline, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much the record, though, man. Yeah. It's yeah. a cool one. Yeah, let's do the ballot result. Ballot result. So a few contenders. I yeah. think you probably you probably feel pretty strongly about a couple, though, sounds like. Oh, I had lots of favorites. I'm so get glad. The Big Clock. Too Late for Tears. Uh, Pigs and Battleships. Tapping the Source. But I got to go with Red Harvest. That was my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in. I can do that. Henry told me uh, the best band tracks are Murder One, The Big Clock, The Setup, and Red Harvest. So those were mm. those were his faves. Right on. Yeah. So, hey, Ryan, thanks to Henry, as always. The best thing about corresponding with Henry is he always sends you stuff he's working on, like unreleased tracks. He sent me a uh, an up upcoming thing he did. Uh, it might even be up now uh, for the Cuneiform page where he gives, you know, he does his weekly solos and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He gives a guitar lesson for Sonny Chirac's track, Dick Dogs, and he's playing in this video through Sonny's gear, which he owns. Wow. So it's pretty wild. Yeah. Interesting tie-in too, right? Hey, with Roger Miller having that new record on Cuneiform. Yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone should check this out. No excuses because, uh, like I said, it's up on streaming. So, It's on Bandcamp too. Is it? Yeah. You can get Remarrying for Money out on Bandcamp. Oh, cool. Yeah. Digital, right? Yeah. All right. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going to go back and do some anti-folk with SST 223, the Kirk Kelly Go Man Go record. Yeah. And we've got a special guest. Kirk Kelly himself is going to be on the show. Can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.